<laughs> you know, uh, it was probably about six years ago that I began to preach in a different style than what I had started out preaching. Um, I used to preach what they would call topical sermons. But then about six years ago, actually when we started this church, I started to preach in the vein of what they call expository preaching. I know that sounds like a really cool big word, and it kind of is, so I'm kind of proud of myself. But anyway, um, and, and what expository preaching is, that you take a book in the Bible, and you go through that book section by section, you go through it verse by verse, and you unpack it from there. And it's very different from topical preaching because topical preaching is you come up with an idea or a thought or a topic or a subject and then you preach off of that. So if you want to talk about marriage or if you want to talk about sin or if you want to whatever the topic is, you think of that topic and then you go from there. You find the scriptures that support that topic and then you build your sermon around those scriptures and the topic that you want to uh, want to talk about. Now, the challenging thing I found with with topical preaching is that we can come at it. I used to come at it with with a with a preconceived idea of what I think this means or what I think I should say about a certain subject or topic. And the danger is then you go to the scripture and you look for the scriptures that support your idea. And so then you preach from that perspective. This is what I believe marriage should be like. I'm going to find verses that support my belief, and I'm going to present my belief to you, and I'm going to use Scripture to back that up. It's dangerous because it's proof texting sometimes Scripture, taking it out of its context and using it for whatever you want it to say. Now, not all topical preachers will do that, but it is a danger. Now, there's there's a guy, Stephen Olford, and he's probably, he's considered one of the best expository preachers like ever. He wrote the book, the Bible. It's called Anointed Expository Preaching. It's a great book. If you ever want to become a preacher, I suggest reading it. But it's really thick. It's like, it's really thick. And in the beginning of his book, he writes that a preacher can preach a topical sermon once a year and then repent when he's done. <laughs> and, and, and so, you know, I've, I've, I've kind of... I decided, you know, about six years ago that I was going to take this avenue of expository preaching. Now, there are very easy parts to expository preaching, and there are some difficult parts. The easy part is I don't have to choose a topic anymore. I don't have to come up with a subject about what I'm going to preach from week to week. The scripture dictates to me what I am going to preach on. Now, the challenging part about expository preaching is the scriptures dictate to me what I'm going to preach on. Because I don't get to, well, if you preach expository-esque and you want to do it with integrity, you don't get to pick and choose what you want to preach on. And so you have to preach those difficult verses. You have to preach those politically incorrect verses. The ones that people just kind of want to gloss over and ignore. The hard ones that, you know, the Bible is, is filled with them. They're difficult verses that we have to wrestle with. But I believe by tackling those verses... That we can bring to light much of what the scriptures are talking about and what they're, what they're telling us. The truth of what is, is, is being said. I have grown to, to have a very firm, firm belief that there is no room, no room in a Christian's life to proof text scripture. 
There is no room for us to take a scripture out of the context of where it was written, out of the totality of the whole um, council of scripture, and just make it be something we want it to be when it's not. It's dangerous. It's very dangerous. So today, today we have one of those verses. Uh, Actually, it's a a group of, of four verses in the scriptures. It's one of those difficult verses to deal with in the Bible. And it becomes especially difficult when we don't handle it correctly. It becomes, it can become very discouraging for Christians to read what John writes in chapter 3 if it's not handled correctly. We have to look at it in the context of John's letter in 1 John, the entire letter, including chapter 3. And we have to look at it in the context of the entire scripture in order for us to really understand it. And I believe that these verses we're going to read should not be discouraging to us, but encouraging to us because it shows that we grow in God's grace. We grow in our sanctification. And so, without further ado, let's go to 1 John 3, verses 6 through 10. And it reads like this. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. Dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. The one who does what is right is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who does what is sinful is of the devil, because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. No one who is born of God will continue to sin, because God's seed remains in them. They cannot go on sinning because they have been born of God. This is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not God's child, nor is anyone who who does not love their brother and sister. That's 1 John 3, 6 through 10. Those can be some very, very difficult words if they are not handled correctly. Now, please understand that uh, chapter 2 of John into chapter 3, he is unpacking something for us that he believes is of utmost importance in the church. He believes that our understanding of this one truth that he's been working through will bring us to a deeper, to experience a deeper inner joy in Christ. And the truth that he keeps coming back to, the truth that he keeps on telling us is that we are children of God, sons and daughters of the living God. And he keeps telling us this because it's important for us to understand that we, through Christ, have become God's children. And because we have that spirit of adoption that we have a, an amazing destiny waiting for us in the future. That when God calls us home, we will spend eternity with him in heaven. We, faith in Jesus Christ, have become children of God. Now, in that truth, we have to come to grips with certain things. We have to come to grips with certain postures that become part of us as we enter into this adoption. 
You cannot claim to be God's child and continue to live a life that disregards your relationship with God. Let me say that again because it's very important. You cannot claim to be a child of God if you disregard your relationship with God. It just doesn't make any sense. Children of God take the relationship with God as something It's important. Holiness flows from inside of us because we're being transformed because we are his children. That's where holiness comes from. It's not what we do. It's who we are. That's what he's teaching us. He's teaching us about our identity. We are God's children. And that's what he begins to address here. Our identity. And and that, that holiness flows from an interior life. And so by addressing that, in these four verses, he has probably written some of the most controversial verses in all of the New Testament. Because these are very hard. If you just kind of look at this and take it out of the context of anything, this can be discouraging to any of us. Now, I'm going to make a very bold statement here. I'm going to say that if you have ever taken your faith journey with any seriousness, that if you have ever desired and really pressed into trying to figure out the kind of life that we are called to live as God's children, then you have had to, at one time or another, come face to face with this section of verses. That you have had to spend some time reading this and wrestling with it. And you might have just said, you know what, I'm not going to deal with that. You just kind of shush it away and ignore it. Or you've allowed it to discourage you, whatever. But if you have taken your faith journey with seriousness, then you've had to come to this and, and looked at it and dealt with it and wrestled with it. And so the question for us as we handle this text... Maybe it's the the elephant in the room. Is John telling us that we as Christians have to live a sinless life? Is he telling us that we have to live a life that's perfect? I I mean, look at at some of the things that he says. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. Mm. This is how we know the children. This is how we know who the children of God are. Verse 10. And this is how we know who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not God's child. I mean, those are, those are harsh verses. In fact, these have become so polarizing in, in Christianity that people either tend to ignore them altogether or they tend to take them right there, out of context, literally, and they become very legalistic about it. And both of those postures are very, very dangerous. And so it's vitally important that we get to the bottom of what John is talking about, what he is saying. Now, I'm going to suggest that any time that you study Scripture, any time that you come to a new section, a new passage, and you want to start to unpack it and figure out what it says, it says and, and even hard text like this, we have to come at it with a, with a blank slate. We have to come at it with a clean slate. We have to put all our predisposed, predetermined ideas of what we think it says, what we've in the past have been taught what it says, what we want it to say. We have to put that aside and come at it in a very pure way of what is going on in these certain texts. And I know that to put our prejudice away, it's a very difficult thing because we as human beings, we do nothing but develop prejudices. 
Now, some of them are good, and, and some of them are very hurtful. I mean, some prejudice that we have are a good thing. Like if I stick a fork into a light socket and get electrocuted, I may develop a prejudice that says, I shouldn't do that anymore, no matter what light socket it is. That's, that's prejudice like that keep me safe. But when we come to studying the Scripture, when we come to difficult texts like this, we have to come, we have to make an effort to leave all of our baggage aside. And see what is being said. We have to put the time in. We have to put the effort in. We have to get unlazy in our approach to God's word. And I would even say that we have to put away this, this controversial spirit that we all carry in us. I've, I've met too many people in my, in my journeys that, um, that have this spiritual arrogance. A, a, a scriptural arrogance, if you will. They, they think it's their job to prove that their interpretation of the scripture is the correct and to prove that other people are wrong. Now, I understand that there are some very black and white doctrinal things in the Bible that, that we stand firm on, especially in this church or in our structure for ministry. There, that's our statement of faith. We will go to battle for those 12 things. We do not budge on those things. But it's not our job to prove us right and to belittle and prove other people wrong. It's our job that we take the scripture and that we begin to unpack it and understand it for ourselves. And then we take that understanding and we apply it to our own lives. And then as we apply the understanding and the truth to that to our own lives, we begin to live it. We begin to live it not only in the context of our community, but outside this, outside this building. And as we live the word of God, we begin to express the word of God in a very natural way. Spiritual arrogance is so off-putting, especially to people who are just trying to kick the tires on this whole Jesus thing. And so we have to consider this, this text. Is John thinking, of, is he talking about individual sin or something else going on here? I'm just, I'm going to read it again. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. Dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. Now remember, he's talking to people in a church where there's false doctrine about Christ coming into the church, trying to tell them that Jesus was not the Messiah. He was not the Son of God. He was just a man that had the Spirit of God, and the Spirit of God left him when he died on the cross. So actually, the Messiah did not die on a cross, just a man. Just as he is righteous, the one who does what is sinful is of the devil, because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. No one who is born of God will continue to sin, because God's seed remains in them. They cannot go on sinning, because they have been born of God. This is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not God's child nor is anyone who does not love their brother and sister. Does this mean that a person cannot commit any individual sin and still be Christian? Does this mean that if you sin, you are no longer a Christian? Now, if you take, that, if you take this verse to mean that, 
that you cannot be a Christian and sin ever again anymore than what you believe that John is preaching or teaching or writing is something called sinless perfection. That when you become a Christian, you no longer sin. And if you are a Christian, you will no longer sin. Now, let me just get a little geeky on you for a minute. Um, Because again, when we come to the scripture, sometimes you have to just go beyond what the commentary says. And you have to dig a little deeper. And you have to dig into into the the grammatical origin of of what the original language has actually said. And if you look at this verse, if you look at it in the original um, New Testament language of Greek, you will find that. and, And I don't read Greek, but I just have really cool software that lets me know all this stuff. So I sound a lot smarter than I am. Um, but anyway, the, the verbs in this, uh, in this section of text are what they call present continuous verbs. Which means that what John is speaking to... It, now stay with me, I know I'm getting kind of crazy on you. But what John is speaking to is, is about the character of a person. He's talking about prevailing habits. He's talking about how we live and not necessarily an individual act of sinning. And so this is about us keeping on. This is about us continually fighting the good fight. This is about us walking that road less traveled. It's about entering through the narrow gates. We have to consider these things very carefully because if we don't, they can lead many a person astray. And it could cause people just to walk away from faith altogether. We have to consider them not only in the context of the letter in which it was written, but the truth of the entire scripture. Because scripture will not contradict scripture ever. Our interpretation of scripture will contradict scripture. But the scriptures itself, they will not, it will not contradict itself. Because it's the inspired word of God. And there is no contradiction in it. And so verse 6, no one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. Okay, so if, let's just say if, if John is speaking about individual acts of sin, and if the person who is guilty of committing a sin is not a Christian, if you, as you sin throughout your life, as you do things that are wrong, as you put something other than God first place in your life, then you can't be a Christian, which would mean that in this room this morning, there is not a single Christian person here. You're all going to hell. Happy summer vacation, huh? You feel better? Good, good. <laughs> And then, and then, well, then we look at verse 9. No one who is born of God will continue to sin. No one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's seed remains in them. They cannot go on sinning because they have been born of God. Is he teaching, again, sinless perfection? Because if he is, that means that there's not only no, not a single Christian in this room, there has never been a Christian Ever in the history of Christianity, and there will never be a Christian in the future. What John is getting at, please understand, what he is getting at is the condition of our heart. He's getting at our interior life. 
He's getting at what is inside of us, not just individual acts of sinfulness, which we know that we cannot be perfected out, perfected out of. He's getting at who we are on the inside. Verses 7 and 8. Where are they? They're there. Dear children, don't let anyone lead you astray. The one who does what is right is righteous, just as he is righteous, speaking of Jesus. The one who does what is sinful is of the devil, because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God has appeared was to destroy the devil's work. It's very interesting the way John writes uh, verse 7. He says, the one who does what is right is righteous. Wouldn't it have been better to write, the one who is righteous would do what is right? But he doesn't, he doesn't say that. He says, the one who does what is right is righteous. He is speaking to the interior life of a person. You do not become righteous by doing the right things. Are you tracking with that? It's very important for us to understand. You do not become righteous by doing the right things. You have been made righteous through faith in Jesus Christ. And that righteousness inside of you has no other vent but to come out in the way you live. You have been made righteous because of the atonement of Jesus Christ on the cross. And that righteousness in you comes out in the way you live. He is continually pressing into who we are. What is our identity? He wants us to understand who we are. If you are God's child, if you have been born of him, if you have been transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit, that will affect your life. There is no, you cannot not live in that, in that posture. It would, it's, righteousness is not the way we act. Righteousness is who we are. And who we are affects the way that we then live. But then he, he kind of pushes this thing because he's talking about identity. He says, according, according to this, if you do not have your identity in Christ, then, then you're, you're of the devil. See, there are people who, who are separated from Jesus Christ, and they are separated from God. And so in that separation, they have the same identity as the devil has because they choose that separation from God. Yeah, I know. I, I hear the way that sounds, and I, I get it. It sounds difficult, and it sounds harsh. I, I understand that. But it's what the Scriptures teach, and the, and the truth of Scripture, sometimes it's not so easy to receive. I wish it could be another way sometimes. But this is what the Scriptures teach us. This is what it, it, we have to deal with as Christians. We can't just gloss over things like this and put it aside. This deepens our walk with Christ to understand this and to be better at living and, and sharing who God is with others. You know, some people will actually argue about this text, and not with me, but I've... I've um, in, in my study and in my reading, and they'll say that John is just kind of writing this to a few people in the church. Uh, just, just certain people who he wants to kind of get this point across to. Um, but, but that's inconsistent, again, with the Scripture. I mean, look at verse 6. No one, not a few, not a couple, no one who lives in him keeps on sinning. He, he, he's, he's pretty much saying either you are in Christ or you are not in Christ. And when you are in him, when you follow Jesus biblically, you are defined as Christian. And if you do not follow Jesus, then you are, you are not. 
if you live in him, if you abide in him without exception, you will begin to live differently. And this, these difficult texts are for the entire church, not just for a few people. He's addressing the entire Christian community. And he's looking at us at, at it from a very holistic uh, perspective. He's just not talking about certain people. He's just not talking about certain parts of people's lives. He's not talking about some behavioral ideal that we like to project either on ourselves or on other people. He's talking about who we are, and he's talking about who we are becoming as, as followers of Jesus. This is what John is speaking to. And if you're not growing in that transformation of Christ-likeness, then there is very strong evidence that you are not his child. And I wonder if C.S. Lewis writes it, I wonder if those who are growing in in his likeness, they become his child without them even really realizing it. Read Mere Christianity, an amazing book. All right, so let's try to kind of gather this stuff in here. John is not speaking of individual acts of sin because we cannot live a sinless perfection, perfect, perfect life. He is speaking here of our, our identity. If we are truly born of God, if we are his child, if we have his seed in us, our interior life has been transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit. The way we live is going to be very different. You will be different on the inside and on the inside will take hold and you'll begin to act differently on the outside. See, our natural state of humanity is being separated from God. And that is our sinful nature, that we are separated from God because... Because of the fall in the garden, humanity has gone their own way. And that's that's sinfulness. That's where the sin is, that we would be separate from God. And those who continue in that separation have the nature, the interior posture of being separated from God. There's a willful separation. They say, no, I will not follow God. I will not believe in Jesus. I will make myself my own God or put something else in my life that is going to be God. It's a willful. It's an arrogance to say, I want nothing to do with that. I am my own God. And that's what Satan has done from the beginning. And that's why those people are of the devil. That's why that's what he talks about when he says those who would keep on sinning. It's not an individual act of sin. It's the posture of your heart that you disregard the things of the Lord. But it's no longer the case with those who are in Christ, those who are born again. We've been given a divine nature. We've been made different. We've been transformed. We've been uh, lifted from the the realm of darkness into the realm of light and righteousness. It does not mean you are sinless. It does not mean you are perfect. It does mean you are in this, this, this transformative phase of your life. That God is working and moving and changing you. We are righteous and holy people. Not because of the way we act, but because of who we are in Christ. But we are not perfect people. I mean, look at yourselves. Go ahead. We are saved, but our salvation is not about achieving some earthly perfection. Our salvation is about the grace of God that's been poured out upon us through Jesus Christ. And the cross, we are saved in spite of all of our imperfection. We who are in Christ do what is right because 
we are in Christ. And we no longer are guilty of wrong, and that wrong, that sinfulness, is, is no longer the controlling desire of our heart. Why? Because we are being transformed. It's, it's a transformation that makes us very aware of our sin. And, and in fact, we begin to grow to hate that, that, that sin in our lives. It's just, just very off-putting to us. And, and it brings us to a place of, of repentance. But our confession and our repentance is because of who we are. We don't repent and we don't confess to become something we are not already. We confess and repent because of who we are, that we are God's children. And the power of the Spirit is alive and well and transforming our inner lives. The seed of righteousness lives in us. And so that we begin to live in a different way. That's what he's getting to here. And do you see how very important it is to understand it the way I'm presenting it? I'm right. Anybody else has been wrong if they've said that this is about individual acts of sin. You know, it's, it's, it's kind of like, it's kind of like telling a fish to get out of the water and climb a tree. A fish can't get out of the water and climb a tree because a fish can only be a fish. The children of God can only be the children of God. They can't be anything else because of the power of the Spirit within them. Now, I know, I, 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 I'm, getting, I'm getting the, uh, the mental mojo here. I hear the questions you're asking. Aren't you putting God kind of in a little box here that, that he can't make us perfect that, that, that he, he can't just remove all of our sinful desires from us, which I think would make life much easier. I mean, it would for me anyway. Or, or maybe, maybe you're thinking, wait, wait, are you, telling, are you telling us that God is limited to what he can do as, as far as sin? That all he can do is really forgive us and he doesn't have the power to actually just, 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 just make us perfect? And those are really good questions. Thanks for asking them. But as you ask me those questions, it creates in me even more questions that I, that I would even push that a little bit deeper and say, well, well why, why on the cross, when Jesus died on the cross, why didn't God just kill Satan? Like, okay, game over. Bzz, you're dead. Or, or, so, okay, now that question has kind of risen to the surface. I, I got another one. Why? Why then? Why that... So Satan rebels in heaven. Why didn't God just kill him right then and there? Why, why when he, we rebe- oh, oh, Lucy, you, oh, you want my job? That's what he called him, you know, Lucifer, short Lucy. You want my, you want my job? Oh, nay, nay, Bzz, you're dead. Why didn't he just take care of it right then and there? Oh, I got one better for you. If God knows everything, past, present, future, why did he even create the devil? Or Lucifer, because he knew he was gonna, he knew he was gonna rebel. My answer to those questions, and even your great questions before that, which prompted me to bring these questions up. You're welcome. That some questions are just irrelevant to ask. Some questions we will never have the answer to. We might, when we come into eternity and we stand before God, I think then we're just not going to care about the questions that we wrestle with here. But some questions are just 
irrelevant to ask. What we are called to be and to do as followers of Jesus Christ is to understand what God has revealed to us about him in this book. And then to take that understanding and to take those revelations and then live deeper and deeper into those truths. That's, I mean, asking questions is is a good thing. It really is. But you always just can't hang in the question. Some questions we'll never have a good answer for. God, in his perfect wisdom, works works out our sanctification slowly and gradually. Sometimes it's painfully slow. But that's the way he chooses to do it. And I don't know why. I mean, I I could speculate, I guess. Maybe, maybe there's, a, there's a clue in verse 9. It says, No one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's seed remains in them. God's seed remains in them. You take a seed and you plant a seed and a seed grows very slowly and that seed needs to be watered and tended to and it needs work. And then it could take a very long time for a seed to grow into maturity and, and to grow into a full blooming plant. Do you know if you take a, is it a pecan or a pecan? Pecan. If you take a pecan seed and you plant the pecan seed, it takes almost 10 years for that to mature so you can get pecans off the tree. Some seeds take a long time to mature and so it is with our own spiritual growth. And you want to know why? I have no idea. It's the way God has chosen to do it. In God's ways, they're a little bit higher than ours. I would say he knows what he's doing. As much as that frustrates me sometimes, uh, I would be a much better pastor if he would just perfect me right now. I I would. Maybe not as much fun, but I'd be pretty perfect. What the scriptures teach us is we are on a journey of maturing and growing into Christ-likeness. And we all grow at different rates and speeds, and we all grow at different speeds in certain, uh, certain times of our lives. And it's all God's allowing or doing whatever theological camp you come from. But here's, here's what I want to leave you with this morning. We need to examine ourselves. We need to look deep within ourselves. And if you are finding it easy to sin... If you are finding it easy that it's no big deal that you have things in your life that are just more important than God and you can just rationalize it away, you can just kind of justify it away, that what John says here is you are not born again. But but if you come, when, when your sin comes to light... Man, and it just causes you, causes you that heartbreak, and you hate it. And it doesn't even, I mean, I'm, I'm going to, and I know this, this might sound liberal, and, and please don't think of it as that way. I'm not giving you license to sin, but, but you might be doing the same sin over and over and again, and, and it still just rips your heart out, and it brings you to your knees, and you're just broken over, and you can't seem to, to escape it, and you hate it, and you, and you cry, and, and, and you just beg God to take it, but for whatever reason, he's not taking it. If that's you... And you are a child of God. Because the spirit of God is what causes that in us. The spirit of God causes confession and repentance. The spirit of God is what's transforming you. And I want to tell you, man, don't give up. 
Don't give up going to your knees. Don't give up releasing and surrendering those things to God. For whatever reason, he hasn't taken it from you. It's for your own good. And I don't, I don't have any explanation for that. That's what the scriptures teach us about God. He will finish the work he has begun in you. He will finish the work that he has begun in you. That's the gospel. That's the good news. And so, Lord, I pray that you would, um, I pray that you would work in the, the hearts of those here this morning. God, I pray that you would, Lord, there's, I know that there's people in here, Lord, and, and we all wrestle with things in our lives that we, we hate that, that, that thing. That, it's the monkey on our back. It's the thorn in our side. It's the thing that we just can't seem to release. Lord, I want to pray for freedom for those people this morning. I want to pray that your Holy Spirit would just come upon them and they would be healed, that that thing would be released in them and they would walk in a new freedom. May your grace pour out heavenly, heavenly grace on this room this morning, God. And may, and may people walk in a newfound freedom. Lord, we rely on you. We have nothing. You are our everything. We stand before you as your children. Receiving your grace humbly and thankfully. In the name of Jesus. Amen. Hey, I love you guys. I'll see you next week.